Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Lucy Hounsom. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Megan Lee. And welcome to the first episode of The New Decade. So Beauty and the Beast is amongst our best-known fairy tales, enduring and enchanting in equal measure. But beneath its romantic exterior lurks a darker story, one that various writers have explored over the years. Tonight, we're joined by best-selling author Bridget Kemmerer, whose newest book, Heart So Fierce and Broken, is published this month. Um, So would you just take a moment to introduce yourself and your work, Bridget? Sure. Hi, I'm Bridget Kemmerer, and it is an absolute pleasure to be here. So I'm very grateful for being invited to be part of your podcast. Um, I live in Baltimore, Maryland. I am a full-time writer, and A Curse So Dark and Lonely was my ninth published novel, and the sequel, A Heart So Fierce and Broken, which comes out this week, um, will be my 11th published novel. And this is my first fantasy series, so I'm so excited that it has been received so well by readers all over the world. It's been fantastic. Um, So stepping back from the Curse Breakers series just for a moment, um, you're the author of multiple YA bestsellers, not all of which are fantastical, as you've just hinted. Um, So what is it that attracts you to YA writing and the genre in particular? So I really love writing for teenagers and young adults. I think there's something really immediate about experiences when you are a teen or even when you start getting into your 20s. You know, I have a friend who's a child psychologist. um, And once I was telling her about an issue that I was having with my son at the doctor when he was a child, um, where the doctor would just speak over him and just kept, you know, talking to him really talking over him and ignoring his questions. And it kept making him more and more upset and more and more confused. And I was explaining this to my friend. And she said, you know, something that a lot of people don't realize is that children aren't stupid humans, they are inexperienced humans. And it was such a wonderful way to put that. And I think about that a lot, especially when I'm writing, you know, everything that teenagers and young adults feel like all of the emotions like fear or lust or love or, you know, anger, all of these emotions are the same emotions that we feel as adults, but we've got the life experience to draw from um, to deal with them. So writing for young adults is basically taking all of those same emotional, emotionally impactful uh, topics and just letting my characters experience them for the first time. So regardless of whether I'm writing contemporary or fantasy or paranormal, you know, that's really the root of all of my books is just learning how to deal with life. It's interesting. You said that this is your first fantasy series, The Curse So Dark and Lonely, because when I was looking at your elemental series, you had teenagers with sort of supernatural powers that could control the elements, sort of the clues in the title. Um, So what kind of distinction do you make between the earlier YA stuff you did um, with the supernatural powers and the sort of full blown, I suppose, second year world fantasy that you've got at the moment? So for me, it doesn't feel any different to write them. You know, I think of the Elemental series as more like a paranormal romance, um, just because it's set in our world. It's, it's, I mean, and granted, A Curse So Dark and Lonely also has Harper, who comes from our world. Um, But I just, I don't think of those as much fantasy as more being the world we live in, kind of a contemporary 
element um, with some magic thrown in. Great. And I mean, of course, your Letters to the Lost and that trilogy of books um, were sort of a more straightforward romance. So can you tell us what it was like sort of dealing with modern realism and, and fantasy and sort of romance and YA and, and the different mindsets you needed for all the different genres that you've written in so far? Sure. Well, you know, it's funny, and I get this question all the time, but I I almost don't feel like I write in different genres. You know, there are different aspects of fantasy or contemporary um, that I have to really keep in mind, you know, with when I'm writing in contemporary, you know, everyone in the world, you know, knows what a toaster is. Well, I mean, most people in the world know what a toaster is, so I don't have to spend time building the world that we live in. Um, You know, whereas in a fantasy novel, if I need to have a character, you know, walking through the woods at two o'clock in the morning, that could be perfectly logical. Whereas if I've got a 16 year old girl, in a contemporary novel walking through the woods at 2 a.m., that's kind of a problem. Um, so, so really it's about balancing those, those types of things. But at their core, all of my books are really about, um, you know, the family that you have and the family that you make and, you know, learning how to fall in love and deal with life in the environment you're in. So jumping into um, Curse Breakers here, because I really, I've read books one and two, and I really, really enjoyed them both. I think they were excellent. And um, yeah, I totally read A Curse of Dark and Lonely in about an afternoon. So I'm really sorry about that, because, <laughs> you know, like as a writer, it just horrifies me that a book that I take, you know, a year or more to write gets devoured in like hours. And I'm like, you are, makes me mad. But um, yeah, it's just a mark of how much I enjoyed it. So, uh, <laughs> Oh, thank you so much. That's awesome. I think one of the reasons I enjoyed it so much was because I really like what you did with Beauty and the Beast and the fact that we've this is a, a fairy tale that we have experienced um, so many times in so many different forms over the years. Like it's there's obviously the Disney version. Everyone's very familiar with that. Um, but lots of authors have kind of done different things with it, transposed it into different settings. Um, but what your version did, which I really, really liked, was literally just kind of used the framework of the tale and really wove a completely different story in that. But but you kind of kept the framework there, which is very interesting. So what originally drew you to Beauty and the Beast and kind of why did you decide to use the framework instead of writing something completely devoid of a fairy tale? Well, so Beauty and the Beast has always been my favorite fairy tale. You know, I, I'm going to show my age here, but I was um, around 12 years old when the first Beauty and the Beast, when the not the first, when the Disney version of Beauty and the Beast was coming into theaters. And this was before, like, there was no streaming, there was no internet. Like, I would stalk the Disney Channel waiting for the preview to play because I was so excited about this movie. Um And so it's always been my favorite story. You know, I was always this, you know, kind of quiet bookish kid. um, And I loved the idea of falling in love with someone for who they are versus for what they look like. You know, there's something really appealing about that type of narrative. Um, So I always wanted to do a Beauty and the Beast retelling. I always wanted to use that kind of framework. But something that always bothered me about really any version of Beauty and the Beast that I've seen, even the Beauty and the Disney version, is that there's never there's never anything happening kind of outside the castle. You know, once the Beast kidnaps Belle or Beauty or whoever's in this beauty role, the entire story is contained to the castle. And I would always kind of wonder, like, so we've got 
this royal family is basically gone because the prince has been turned into a monster and no one is aware, like no one is missing their rulers. Like what is going on in the kingdom? How is this going on for such an amount of time? And no one has really kind of noticed. Um, and once I put Harper in Emberfall with Ren and I had her escape the castle, you know, for when she tried to get away, it, it really gave me that opportunity to explore Emberfall and try to decide what was happening in Ren's kingdom. And once I kind of had that in my teeth, I ran with it. A curse so dark and lonely is very aware of the stereotypes that have gone before. Uh, I know that in the history of fairy tales, Beauty and the Beast as a story was designed to appeal to people who are in arranged marriages. And you've got this terrifying time coming up, this man you don't know, and you've got a story that somebody will tell you that actually it's okay. And if you're nice to them, and if you truly love them, then you will find the, the human within and he will be less beastly. And what I really liked about this is that you kind of question this and it was really central to the pot to the plot harper expresses disbelief that she has to fall in love with wren to break the curse so was harper's in-story awareness of the fairy tale element your way of claiming the tale of beauty of the beast as your own and kind of distancing it from this idea that at the end of the day whatever retelling of beauty and the beast you have it can be linked back to this idea of arranged marriage is fine you'll fall in love eventually oh absolutely you know i one of the you know biggest problems with Beauty and the Beast and this the the entire story comes under this kind of criticism a lot is the the whole Stockholm syndrome you know angle where you know okay you'll fall in love you're stuck here so you might as well fall in love and I really wanted to avoid that you know so that's why a lot of people call A Curse So Dark and Lonely a bit of a slow burn romance and it's definitely very slow burn because. You know, Harper knows that Ren's got an ulterior motive. She doesn't trust him. Harper really doesn't trust anyone. You know, she kind of comes from a very rough place. Um, and Harper's kind of a badass about it. And she she's she doesn't want to fall for anything. She doesn't want to be tricked by anyone. So Ren really needs to first earn her trust before he has any hope of breaking the curse. Um, one of the things that I wanted to touch on was the kind of the the issue for me is not so much about um, Stockholm syndrome in that um, sort of it actually doesn't quite fit that. It, there's a there's a really good uh, video essay by Lindsay Ellis on this, um, and it's it's really interesting and it breaks down the things that that Belle doesn't fit into Stockholm syndrome, like that she's not actually kidnapped. She makes the decision to stay and is the one who offers that in the first place. Nor does she respect the beast rules or put up with his shit. So basically, she's just you know she's got a lot of attitude and she makes those choices. But at the same time, my problem really is that as an overall character she has no choice about where she ends up. And that's the bit that I really dislike. And it's like she can't, even, even falling in love, it's not really the choice that she's given. It's kind of an inevitability. And it sounds to me like you've given your character a lot more choice, a lot more agency. So, you know, is that something that you really specifically wanted to to do? And is that because there are problematic um well, because it's a problematic representation in the original story? Or was that just more because this is kind of modern times and we wouldn't really accept that kind of completely taking away a young woman's freedom in that sense? Oh, absolutely. You know, and I really, I think that it's both. You know, I, I wanted Harper to be a bit of an aspirational character. I wanted <clears throat> I wanted readers to be able to identify with her, you know, and 
even I'd be really interested to read that essay that she talks about because even though Belle does make the choice um, to stay there, she makes it's not really a free choice. It's not like she walks into the castle and she's like, okay, I'll hang out. She makes the choice yeah. to stay there to save her father. You know, it's kind of like, okay, you're either going to kill him or, or, you know, keep him prisoner or you're going to keep me prisoner. Um, you know, and I didn't want to put Harper into that type of a situation. I mean, obviously Ren can't let her go, but I tried to build out reasons. Like, you know, he locks her in the room originally. I hope that's not spoilery. Um, it's, it's in the first two chapters. So he, you know, he locks her in the room, not necessarily because he doesn't want her to leave. He locks her in the room because he's like, it's really not safe for you to go, you know, bolting around Emberfall. If you're not going to trust me, you still have to stay here. Um, you know, and even when she sees what's going on with his kingdom, she has to make a decision about, is she going to help him? Is she going to help his people? You know, what is she going to do? And it was really important to me that it not be, oh, well, I guess I'm here. I guess I'm trapped. Yeah. I, Completely agree that I felt that she had a choice all the way throughout that story. I mean, she tries to escape several times and <laughs> they yes. really can accuse her of not trying to escape. Um, it was just reminding me, because it's so funny, about the idea that like Harper comes from DC, like someone who's grown up there is well aware of like basically Disney and fairy tales and how they work. And I just like her attitude that she's like, I can't quite believe I've fallen into this real fairy tale. Is that something you kind of wanted to write into the book? Like this, um, it's almost meta. It's like this awareness, a sentience of itself as being a kind of, you know, a setup. Yes. Well, you know, that kind of thing, when I'm reading, that kind of thing makes me a little bananas. So that's why I needed Harper to kind of figure it out early on. You know, and she even, she calls Ren on it. She's like, okay, what am I supposed to do? Fall in love with you? Um, because you're right. Like anyone, anyone from our world is going to have a rough idea of what a fairy tale is. You know, and she, te- not she doesn't really tease Ren, but she even when she's talking about Ren, you know, she calls him, you know, oh, you're just a fairy tale prince. Um so yes, yes. You know, I, I try to call a spade a spade anytime there's an opportunity to do so. Megan talked a minute ago about the inevitability of the romance between Wren and Harper, because this is Beauty and the Beast, and she's clearly Beauty, and he's clearly the Beast. But one of the things I found quite interesting, and I will have to hold my hand up here and say, uh, unlike Lucy, although I really enjoyed the first one, I haven't got around to reading the second one yet. And obviously no one knows about the third one, so I don't know how it turns out. But there is this kind of undercurrent between Harper and Grey, which I thought was quite interesting because I know that you've come from obviously a romance background. And I read a lot of romance. I went on a romance writing course. I have written, ghostwritten romance. And one of the things that you tend to kind of focus on is keep the romance very straightforward and very clear that it's between these two characters, whereas now you've kind of introduced a third and it's not quite a triangle, but it's really subtly done. And I just kind of wondered if you could talk about that and why you decided to take something that is clearly two people falling in love and add in a a third element that was a little bit more interesting. Sure. I mean, you know, love is complicated and... I didn't, I didn't want to write your typical love triangle because it's, it's not really a love triangle. You know, again, Ren has an ulterior motive. Ren is very clearly falling in love with Harper. Um, and Harper is, is falling for Ren. And I know there are a lot of readers who are like, there's chemistry between Harper and Gray. There's clear chemistry there. 
and I let the chemistry stay. You know, I talked to my editor about it um, and I let the chemistry stay because I think that happens in real life. You know, we can be in love with someone, but still have flares of attraction for someone else. And it is addressed a bit in A Heart So Fierce and Broken. Um, you know, Gray talks about it a little bit and he has some moments with Harper in A Heart So Fierce and Broken. And it's definitely going to come up again in the third book. I can't reveal the title yet. Um yeah, so this this undercurrent of attraction between them will definitely um, be addressed time and time again. And I'm not going to spoil anything and tell you who anyone ends up with or who ends up happy. And if anyone ends up disappointed, you'll just have to wait. And see. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, or if anybody ends up happy, though. <laughs> oh, so, uh, well, yeah. I was kind of secretly rooting for Grey, although I think but one. He's <laughs> a really good character. <laughs> um, so... Going back to something that we talk about quite a lot on Breaking the Glass Slipper, probably a clue is in the name of our podcast, but um, fairy tale princesses are something that we've discussed before. Um, and having to cope with her cerebral palsy, um, her mother's illness, and obviously living a very dangerous existence um, in on the streets, um, your protagonist, Harper, is really nothing at all like a fairy tale heroine, um, even though she's been thrown into... Um, a fairy tale kind of situation. So, I mean, what do you see as the archetypal traits of a fairy tale princess or a heroine? And why did you want to, you know, quite clearly invert them? You know, I, I think that, I mean, not even, this is a hard question to answer. I'm sorry. Now I'm going to stumble all over it. I think with any kind of heroine that, they can really come from any background. It's really more about who you are inside. And, you know, do you stand up for people? Do you stand up for what you believe in? Do you, you know, go out of your way to try to help people and be that kind of person? Or are you going to think of yourself? And I think that really at its core is what makes a princess. I I feel like I sound like a little princess. Like, you know, she's like, everyone can be a princess. Um, But I, but I, but I genuinely feel that way. You know, I think, you know, Harper's whole background, you know, doesn't matter. It's, you know, when she is faced with adversity, what is she going to do with it? And I think that's really what makes a princess. Mm. But what I love about Harper is that she actually does have, because you just mentioned being um, kind of selfless and, you know, sticking up for kind of other people rather than yourself. But I like the fact that Harper isn't completely like that because she's learned that, you know, living on the streets, living this kind of existence where her natural um, pillars are removed, like no kind of, she has no real strong parental guidance and it's just her and her brother kind of having to fend for themselves at a very early age they, they've clearly both learned that you've got to look out for yourself in this life otherwise you get trampled on and I think that quality that she then brings to mm-hmm. Emberfall is what makes her such an interesting character and not in a way your typical kind of fairy tale princess because and I think this is kind of you clearly pick this up in the second book when you actually have real princesses you know, introduce two new characters who genuinely come from like princess stock and, and, you know, the kind of the way that Harper is actually is so different from both of those characters um, for several reasons. And Mm -hmm. I think that's why kind of having that element of realism works really well in a fantasy setting. I just wanted to say also that the Beauty and the Beast, going back to like the original story, 
that Beauty is a character who has already shown that she can deal with hardship. And I think that you're taking that over with Harper, at least that's how I see it. Where So in the original story, she is the daughter of a merchant who whose ships go missing. And so he has become penniless. After being very wealthy, he's now penniless. And she is the only one of his children who actually sort of just bucks up and, and gets things done, gets on with things. She doesn't sit there moping. She um, she just shows that she's strong, independent, um, and you know accepts the life that she now has. And I definitely see that as being one of the things that always made beauty in in all her incarnations far more interesting than a lot of the you know princesses that we get in these kinds of stories because you know as you say she, you know, she's has basically she's she's not vapid she has more going on and she has that strong um core personality that that makes beauty uh, a far more interesting character absolutely i agree with you 100 percent. maybe maybe that's why this fairy tale seems to have such strong staying power, you know, among, you know, readers, like really across the spectrum. You know, if you ask a hundred people, what's your favorite fairy tale? I think Beauty and the Beast would have probably the highest percentage. Quite possibly. I mean, the other thing that I really love about Beauty and the Beast as a story, which we haven't really touched on, is the kind of um, the showing of the the othering of people in society, and you know, so like oddballs like me, I I loved it seeing Beauty and the Beast. Way it was basically a story where people could still love the the oddballs, whether or not you're thinking about the oddball as the beast or the oddball as Beauty, who likes to read books or you know, that kind of thing. It's it just shows you that these people have value. And that was certainly something that I really uh, clung on to as a kid. Well, I agree with you there. And I think one of the charms of Bridget's story in particular is a bit like the George Lucas film Strange Magic. So I wrote an article about the film for Tor.com. And I basically made the point that in all the other fairy tales you have, somebody changes for the part for the two parties to get together so the beast becomes human and is beautiful and so the two beautiful people can get together and in shrek fiona has to become ugly and the ogre so that they can stay together and okay she chooses to be you can't see my air quotes ugly um and be the ogre at the end sorry spoilers if you haven't seen shrek but um it's still the idea that you've got to have two beautiful people together or two ugly people. You can't have one of each. And I think what was wonderful about Strange Magic was that you neither one of them physically changed at the end. And again, I'm not sure how, obviously, you're going to um, end the Curse series, but I, I can't really imagine Harper changing physically how she is because she can't. And I suppose there's sort of an element of... Um, uh, Ren, sorry, it took me a second there, of Ren sort of being the beast all the time because you're inside his head. So he's not really changing. And there's this idea that, you know, they, they are two very flawed people and neither one of them are giving up their personal flaws to come together. Yes, Does that absolutely. make sense? So, you know, there, there's sort of emotional changing, but there's no physical change. They're both accepting each other for the way that they are. Yes. And it was, it was when I was coming up with Harper's character a lot of people have asked, you know, why did I give her cerebral palsy? And it was important to me that with Ren being cursed by magic, I knew that Harper, you know, he would say to Harper, I'm cursed. And she would see his curse 
and be like, you know, this really doesn't seem like a curse. You live in this castle, you have this endless supply of food. You know, your life really doesn't seem all that bad. I wanted Harper to have, you know, not that cerebral palsy is a curse by, you know, by no means, but I wanted Harper to have something that Ren would see as a curse that Harper didn't, you know, in that, that I would kind of juxtapose the characters that way. And it was very important to me that Harper not overcome her, you know, the, the cerebral palsy that affected her balance and her leg and everything she had to cope with on that side. And I also didn't want Ren to have to kind of give who he was, you know, even though, you know, in, in the, hopefully it's not a spoiler to say, you know, a curse gets broken in the story of Beauty and the Beast. Um, you know, I didn't want Ren to have to give up who he was as the, you know, crown prince of Emberfall or anything like that along his side either. They really did kind of have to meet in the middle without, you know, that kind of changing the core element of who they were. And I really loved how, um, the role who was traditionally beauty in in this story that you gave a physical disability to because like you say Ren sort of sees it as a curse but it isn't and I, I think it's a really wonderful distinction that in these enlightened times and with our enlightened readers and everybody who listens to this podcast we all know that it is not a curse to be have a physical disability that plenty of people have them and we all get on really well and there's no difference and I think it's really nice to see that within something that is typically seen to be beautiful and bring it to the fore and going no this is a story for today this isn't the story for the past when the beast had physical deformities this is the day when beauty has a physical disability and she's still beautiful because that's what we understand and that is our modern life and again because Harper is from the current world our modern world and Ren is obviously from again, air quotes, backwards, sort of medieval style society. And he's like, hmm, I think it's a really wonderful tension that you've got there that a modern audience can really appreciate. This is a great uh, place to jump in and just um, talk a bit more about disability kind of in in YA fiction and in fantasy, um, because I feel like we still don't see it that often, um, and especially in fantasy. Um, so I don't know if if you have any thoughts about this. Like in your in your experience, um, why do you think authors might be a bit reluctant to explore disability in fantasy or science fiction? You know, I don't I don't know that there's necessarily a reluctance. You know, I I think sometimes people don't want to get it wrong. Um, I do definitely think that you know people first off, want to leave a seat at the table. You know, if someone wants to write about their own personal experience, uh, I personally do not have cerebral palsy. So it was important to me that this was not a book about living with cerebral palsy, that it just happened to be an element of Harper's character and who she is. Um, And it did take a tremendous amount of research. You know, I know authors have, you know, as you said, become more enlightened, especially within the last decade about the need for characters like this to be in our fantasy and our fiction, just in any of the media that we consume. And it's just a matter of doing the research uh, to make sure you get it right and hiring sensitivity readers to make sure again, that you've gotten things right and that you're not writing about the disability as a trait, but just really more of a feature of who the character is. And the world around us is incredibly diverse and full of people with, you know, not just, physical disabilities or physical differences and different traits about them, you know, but neurodiversity and, you know, diversity across the, you know, LGBTQ spectrum, you know, and it's, it's important to include all of these characters in our fiction because they exist in the world around us. I mean, do you feel that 
YA as a genre is kind of uh, leading the way in this. Um, I mean, I, I just feel like it's there's something about um, the teen writing in particular that seems to be a bit more open to kind of challenging traditional methods of storytelling and also challenging traditional content, the kind of, you know, stuff that manifests as tropes and stereotypes, which, you know, ends up filling our books with the same characters and the same stories over and over again. You know, I would say that it's both YA and also romance as a genre. Oh, that's interesting. You know, romance is really beginning to, um, you know, there are a tremendous number of, you know, romance authors who are really getting out there and, you know, kind of opening up the genre to be more inclusive. Um, you know, Courtney Milan, um, Alicia Rye, I hope I'm not mispronouncing their names. Um, and Helen Huang, you know, some, some authors that, you know, I personally love who are definitely, you know, kind of leading the forefront of bringing characters, you know, of all abilities and races and types um, to the table. And it's, it's wonderful to see. We obviously talk a lot about women on this podcast, um, and that's that's natural, and that's great, and we love women. Um, but because we're a feminist podcast, we're also very interested in um, you know depictions of of male characters, kind of in a healthier light than perhaps you know epic fantasy and fantasy in general has has kind of portrayed them in the past. Um, and one thing that I found really interesting about your take on this myth or this uh, fairy tale is. Um, is your kind of focus on Ren and what the curse does to him mentally. Uh, and that's, you know, obviously everybody's familiar with, oh, the beast is a beast. It's, it's very, he's very physically bestial, you know, and, and that's the kind of curse we're all familiar with. But actually your curse is more mental kind of, I feel, than, than physical. And it's certainly in the second book, I feel like his, um, he has quite, he exhibits kind of quite a lot of like post-traumatic stress from, the years he lived under the curse. And I just wanted to ask you about whether that was something you set out to do, or something that you felt was lacking um, in the original fairy tale. So it definitely wasn't something I set out to do initially when I first started drafting, you know, but the the deeper I got into, you know, Ren's head as I was writing the book, the more I realized this would really mess someone up. You know, it's, you know, he's living this repetitive season where he has tried everything he can to get out of it. You know, he has, um, you know, put himself into a really terrible situation with Lilith, this enchantress who seems to delight in torturing him. um, And he just endures this time and time and time again. And when he comes out of it, you know, he, he is, you know, rather scarred emotionally from everything that he went through. Um, and I, it was, it was, I don't want to spoil anything, but when I was writing a heart so fierce and broken, you know, Ren is forced to make some choices for what he thinks is the right thing to do to protect Emberfall, both from magic and from another kingdom. And, you know, some readers, you know, have said, no, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with Ren's choice and I don't agree with Ren's choice either, you know, but I think that Ren's choice is true to who he is and what he feels at the time he makes the choice. Um, If that's not too vague, hopefully, Um, you know, so Ren is definitely on a journey. If anybody has read a heart so fierce and broken um, and is wondering, you know, is, is Ren's journey going to end poorly? um, You know, I'll just say, 
please have faith in me and have faith in Ren. And one of my favorite things about YA is that no matter how dark it is, you can always have hope. So I hope that readers will hang in there for him and for me. Oh, well, I thought, I, I applauded his decision. I mean, like, not not on the, in the moral sense, um, but in the sense that I thought it was absolutely true to form and thought that there's no way that someone can experience what he has gone through without some serious shit that he has to work through afterwards and you can't simply be a paragon of morality or virtue of when you've suffered at the hands of someone as twisted as Lilith so I feel like that was you know I think it was really really great and I think the books would be poorer for it if you if you hadn't kind of touched on um of of his mental health because I feel like male mental health in particular is just something that um people are a bit, maybe men in general are particularly reluctant to explore. And I know this is, again, something that has, um, you know, improved over the last like 18 months to two years where everyone is being a lot more open about their mental health. And that's great. But I feel like we do need more fiction that shows men in a vulnerable way rather than as people, you know, who can somehow, they're somehow superhuman and they can, can shrug off experiences that, you know, were were actually very damaging and because we're all human after all absolutely i agree 100 percent. you know and i do i you know i think for a little while sometimes you know it it can seem tough to balance you know how do i write this tough alpha male while still allowing to allowing him to have some vulnerable moments and you know in one of my contemporary novels i had a character who was a teen boy who had been severely abused as a child. And I worked with a psychologist to kind of figure out like what, you know, what, how would that play out when this character is a t- an older teenager, if he had been abused while he was very young. And the psychologist was really into Brazilian jujitsu. And as we were talking, he said something that is so important <clears throat> for boys and men is to be able to touch other men in a safe way. And, you know, in our society, you know, women can touch each other pretty freely. You know, women touch each other's hair, give each other hugs or, you know, touch someone's arm or, you know, or anything or, you know, hey, let me tuck your tag in. You walk up to a stranger on the street. No woman would care, you know, but, you know, if a man walked up to another man and said, you know, hey, I want to tuck your tag in, you know, you might get punched in the face, you know, and that, again, we could spend hours talking about society and and how that, how that happens. Um, But it was really fascinating. I didn't mean to go off on that tangent, but it was really fascinating to speak to this psychologist about how sports like jujitsu or wrestling or, you know, any, anything that's physical, allows men to fulfill this need for touch in a socially acceptable way. And I think about that a lot, not just this need for touch, but I think about that a lot when I'm allowing men to be vulnerable, but still in a alpha male way, if that makes sense. You mentioned um, before when you were, when we were talking about like what drew you to um, Beauty and the Beast in the first place is that you kind of were like, well, the world outside the castle, it doesn't just freeze, you know, things continue. Um, and I feel like you've obviously really brought that, I mean, it comes out in book one, but it really comes out um, in book two, where the whole action moves away from the castle, kind of out into the wider the wider world of Emberfall um, and beyond. Um, so was this a kind of conscious switch? You, did you want to kind of go from this, um, 
you know, quite a, a deep focus on one place and one, you know, because that, that's a very, very powerful. But then to kind of push that out into a much more kind of epic fantasy structure rather than a, like that kind of quite focused fairy tale structure. Is that something you set out to do kind of right from the very beginning? No, not right from the very beginning, not at all. And then once I really got out into the kingdom of Emberfall and, you know, realized, you know, who they had at their borders and, you know, that they they had enemies out there and how that was affecting the kingdom, um, it really kind of took on a life of its own, which was really fun to explore. But no, in the beginning, I really didn't set out to write and follow this epic fantasy structure. But once it started to work, I kind of ran with it. Did you find it more challenging? To, this is coming from an epic fantasy author. Right? This is I, I generally um, have, I mean, I have created very big worlds and I know kind of the challenges involved in keeping a reader's attention on, you know, a scale that that's, you know, that fast. So was it a different experience in suddenly having to draw on and pull in all these elements from different places and, and kind of enrich the world that way? A little bit, yes. You know, especially since, you know, the neighboring kingdom, Sil Shallow, you know, has has a queen and they have just, they have a very different, um, you know, it's not a patriarchal society, it's a matriarchal society. And trying to figure out, you know, how that would affect the, the characters from that world and from that kingdom and how they would interact with characters from Emberfall. And then something that was really important to me is if I was putting women in power, I did not want to present that in a negative light. You know, I didn't, I didn't ever want anybody to be able to say, oh, well, look, women are in power and the whole world is falling apart. Or, oh, look, women are in power and they're treating men like crap. Um, you know, I wanted to kind of give it a balance. There, is, there are all sorts of things that you like, um, it can be leveled at books, you know, like some accusations. You're like, no, I wasn't trying to do that. But it's, it's quite hard to kind of keep all of those things in your head, you know, saying, well, like, I want to present this woman and she needs to be protective of her kingdom, but not come across as a dictator, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a good opportunity to ask you about a um, very naughty question. But do you have any hints for us about the third book in the series? And is that going to be the last book? So right now, the third book in the series is all I have under contract. Um, so there could be more in the future. You know, I, I definitely am going to close up the major arcs, you know, the major character arcs with Ren and Harper and Gray and Liamara. And, oh, I don't know if I can give you any hints. Oh, like, is it set in, is it set in like Emberfall or is it, does it, does it follow the structure of the previous two books or is it a big wide epic fantasy type? So it does follow the structure of the previous two books pretty, pretty similarly, um, though I do kind of have it divided into three parts. And I think you'll be able to look forward to a return to Washington, D.C. for a bit of it. So just wait and see. (laughs) that certainly sounds very intriguing because i've loved how um harper has been put into the secondary fantasy world with all its backward ideas and how she's challenging harper and sorry how she's challenging ren to a certain extent gray as well i would really like to see how obviously ren and gray deal with their outmoded attitudes being challenged by modern society and obviously I don't know where this is going but that just sounds like it's absolutely right for all sorts of examination of lots of different issues and blowing the whole fairy tale stereotypes wide open so I'm very much looking forward to that 
Before we um, say goodbye, I do just want to ask you a question that we got on Twitter um, from Vi. So she's a big fan. Um, so if you had the chance to live in Emberfall, would you go? And if so, sort of what what would you do there? Who would you be? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, yes, if I had the chance to go to Emberfall, I would probably go. You know, if um, just because that would be amazing. Um, just, you know, hey, Bridget, do you want to step into your book? Yes. So, but who would I be? You know, I would probably be like Freya. You know, I would want to be like Grey or Zoe and, you know, be a fierce, lethal, badass swordsman. But really, the mom in me knows that I would probably be a lot like Freya. Hey, but that's cool, though. I I was going to say, as a fellow mom, I kind of see, I see both sides of it. Um... And particularly, I think having a daughter, I don't know, do you have sons or daughters, Bridget, if you're willing to share? All boys. All boys. I think it's slightly different when it's a girl. I mean, no disrespect by that, but I do. No, no, no. You're right. You're right. (laughs) You kind of, I feel really protective of my daughter because there's a lot of stuff out there that I feel she's going to have to deal with. And it, it's things like, for example, there was a load of carry-on films on over Christmas, which the older generation wanted to watch because they still find it funny. And I can kind of see the humour in it, but I'm also sitting there oh my God, that's terribly racist. Oh my God, the sexism. And I, ha- I had to explain to my daughter why I would rather sit and read Harry Potter with her than watch what the older generation were watching. And I, I kind of said to her, you know, that there was a time when people weren't really very nice to women and they thought they were second class and they thought that people with different skin colour were second class. But think about your class today, your school class, and how many people with different skin colours you have. And you don't think anything different of them, do you? And we had this long discussion. And then bless her, she stood up and patted me on on my arm and said, I'm so sorry you had to live through that, mummy. Oh. <laughs> I, like, I know. But the, the sad thing was I kind of wanted to turn around and go, yeah, but I'm afraid you're going to have to deal with this shit as well at some point. Yeah. Whereas I think with boys it is a little bit different so I do find myself being more of a a sort of a warrior type when it comes to my daughter and ready to step in and defend her because there is so much more out there that is willing to hurt your child whereas I think with boys I kind of be like oh no I'd just be so uncool if I was the warrior mom they'd be like oh no mom mom no I've got my own sword go away (laughs) um well yes well I was gonna say and it's it's so funny because so as the mom of boys you know I so a few months ago, my eight-year-old, my uh, middle son, he had heard something on a cartoon that was portrayed as, as very funny. Um, and you know how kids will repeat stuff because they think it's funny. And I was, t- I don't, I don't remember what I was telling him to do, like clean up the kitchen table or finish his homework or something. Um, and he said, whatever, mom, just get back in the kitchen and make me a sandwich. that sound you made was the exact sound (laughs) I made and luckily um, my husband heard it and he came storming in and he was like you do not speak to your mother that way and then we had a whole conversation which my poor little eight-year-old he was just repeating something he'd heard in a cartoon you know but then he got the whole explanation of you know this is how um you know, this is what sexism is. And this is why it's not okay to say that. And, you know, and it's, so you're absolutely right. It's so different with boys and girls because boys are presented the media of this is okay. And this is acceptable and trying to kind of counteract that feels like just an effort every minute of every day. 
Well, that's the thing. I mean, we did a whole episode on toxic masculinity, and I think there's so much of that in boys' fiction and, and things like that. They're just like, they all go out there and, and get out there and be adventurous. And it's like there's nothing that kind of shows thinking and planning and strategy. And it was one of the reasons why I was a little bit against changing Doctor Who to a woman. And having seen how much my daughter loves Doctor Who, I now cannot ever say that it was a bad idea. And I didn't think it was a bad idea. I just thought that it was such a shame that boys didn't have a Doctor Who to look up to because they've got so many action heroes and things. And then you've got the Doctor who who is a pacifist generally, who thinks about things, who is caring, and he's always looking to help as many people as possible rather than just save himself or save the world. And he also understands that sometimes saving the world can involve death and can involve pain, and he's not afraid to cry and all this stuff. And then they were like, oh, we're going to make her a woman. And I was like, but that kind of robs guys of the really good role model even if it does give girls a really fantastic role model at the time so I think it's it's just you know Doctor Who is just awesome whichever way you look look at it Charlotte are you saying that boys can't have a female role model uh no 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 no, but I I understood what she was saying that you know that that now now we've taken away this this gentle example of a male role model yes what I'm saying is that it's a shame that guy, boys can't have more guys as role models who show what are traditionally feminine qualities. I mean, we've talked previously about how women sort out problems. They tend to think about it and work in a team, which is exactly what Doctor Who does, rather than just, you know, grab a, a sword and, and fight and things like that. And I know there's an element to that to Doctor Who, but he combines so many different things. And I just thought it was such a good role model for kids. But I, I kind of have to say that when I, when I was saying to my daughter, you know, if you're having bad dreams, why don't you lie there and think about being the doctor's companion? And she turned around to me and went, or I could imagine being the doctor. And I went, yes, you could. That is also equally. Oh, she got you there. She did. did. And I I think that, you know, there is is a lot to be said for Jodie Whittaker and I'm a huge fan, but I still kind of feel like the best thing to do would be to have Jodie Whittaker as Doctor Who and have another type of Doctor Who hero for boys as well. So that there are more people like Doctor Who out there for boys to look up to. And then they will appreciate that, you know, men can be thinky and girls can be warriors and it, it's all good. And that is how the world is, that there are lots of different types of people and it's not just stereotypes. Oh, well, they have 12 other doctors to uh, occupy themselves with. Get them to watch the old 60s ones where all the monsters were made of polystyrene. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I don't want to keep you too long, Bridget. So... I just want to say a big thank you for coming along and talking to us and giving up your time. Oh, thank you for having me. You are all so lovely. I mean, really, I could talk to you for another hour, honestly. Um, <laughs> oh, don't tempt us. <laughs> <laughs> so no, really, thank you so, so very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. And it was, it was really a delightful hour. It flew by. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.